cliffcentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on com. My name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. 24th of January 2017. Um, this is literally the brokest day of the year. This is, this is, this is as bad as it gets. Um, Greg, I'm assuming you've eaten all the leftover onions and lemons in the back of your cupboard by now. Even the moldy ones I was trying to leave out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just got, just got to get through one more day. And yet here we are surviving. For you guys tuning in, I appreciate it. You probably used your last megabyte of data trying to, trying to listen through to us and get through, so we appreciate it. My name is Kizuki Puri. I'll be your host. Um, I'm joined in the studio by Greg, uh, who you've already heard. Uh, we've got a really, really exciting show lined up. Um, we'll be talking a bit about patents on life-saving medicine um, and how these sort of pieces of legislation are denying a lot of people around this country uh, and around the world actually life-saving healthcare and access to medical care. Uh, secondly, we'll be talking about uh, apartheid era state corruption uh, and specifically an investigation by the public protector uh, following the flow of billions of rands that are alleged to have been fraudulently sort of stolen from the state. And lastly, we'll be talking about the hate crimes bill. Um, it's quite a, a popular, one can say, piece of legislation given the xenophobic attacks we've seen over the past probably about 10 years now and more recently some of the um, social media attacks from people like Penny Sparrow and so on, and there's been a big feeling that there needs to be some something, um, another piece of legislation that we can use. Um, so we'll jump right in. Um, first, uh, we'll be speaking to Claire Waterhouse, who's the advocacy coordinator at MSF Doctors Without Borders. Um, Claire, just to get started, um, you you recently released a report and 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 wrote a sort of piece for the Huffington Post and and you told this tragic story of 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 Tobega Daki who who needed a life-saving drug for for her treatment could you just talk us through that uh, that that particular example of what happens yeah sure um you know, there's a lot of examples of this. Uh, Tobeka was a, a wonderful, brave woman who worked with us for years on this campaign. Uh, she had a type of breast cancer, which is called HER2-positive breast cancer, quite a specific specific type of, of cancer. And there's a drug uh, which can increase survival rates of women who have this type of cancer by up to 37%. And it's called Trastuzumab, uh, has a patent monopoly in South Africa. So there's a company called Roche, and they've patented this drug uh, until I think it's something like 2033. And what that means is that no competition can come onto the South African market for this drug until that patent expires. Um, and it's highly likely that Roche will take out secondary patents and other patents and just keep going and protecting their, their drug in South Africa. And that means that no... Not of that, Roche can charge whatever they like. And what that means in this case is that they were charging approximately, well, they still are charging approximately 485,000 rand. So nearly, nearly 500,000 rand a year for this treatment. And Tobeka, who was a mother with two sons, she was from East London. Um, she was a brave and wonderful woman. She had this type of cancer. She could not afford access to the medicine. When she was covered by a medical aid scheme, she uh, she was denied the treatment to it because it was too expensive for the medical aid. And when she had to move into the public sector uh, health care because she could no longer afford her medical aid because she had to stop working as a result of her cancer, the doctors didn't even tell her that this drug existed because they knew they weren't able to provide it. So most women don't even know that this drug is an option. Tobeka did know, and she worked with us, and we campaigned hard, and we campaigned to everyone, government, to 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 the company itself, and there was no no compromise. And unfortunately, eventually, the cancer spread to Tobeka's spine, and she lost her battle uh, last November. And that's just the story of so many people in South Africa, and we are devastated that we lost Tobeka, um, and we're devastated that women will die like this in South Africa and other people of other diseases with the same problems. Now, Claire, I mean, this is not, I mean, as tragic as it is, this is not, as you say, this is not atypical. There's a lot of people around the country who, who just can't afford 
uh, access to, to life saving uh, to life saving drugs like what you mentioned for for cancer for TB Absolutely. and so on. Now, um, so- South Africa is a is a signatory or member of the of the World Trade Organization, which which allows for legislation like this that says if a if a company brings in an innovative drug, they're allowed to charge whatever they want for twenty years. So, in a country like South Africa, with a, with with our progressive, as we like to say, constitution that tries to pro- to 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 guarantee people access to healthcare, where where does that leave us? We've signed on to this thing that says people are allowed to charge whatever they want. At the same time, we, we want to be the kind of country where people aren't dying because they can't afford can't afford medicine. So where, where does that leave us? Well, actually, you know, we have signed on to the World Trade Organization. So technically, we do have to do this patent thing. But uh, and that's that's known as TRIPS within the World Trade Organization, trade related aspects of intellectual property rights. But countries like South Africa started seeing such issues with this that in 2002, uh, there was an addition made onto this clause within the World Trade Organization, uh, which we call the Doha Declaration. And that essentially says, actually, countries can use specific safeguards in their IP law, in the intellectual property law, when it comes to public health. So there are specific safeguards that South Africa could be uh, putting into its its IP law that would allow us to, to have exceptions when it comes to uh, public health and when it comes to prioritizing the health of people living in that country uh, over the profits of pharmaceutical companies. So there are things that the South African government can integrate into our law to protect against exactly this kind of issue. I mean, the, the, I mean, you've mentioned that there's sort of legislative room to work with and the, and the, the Department of Trade and Industry, the DTI has been, has, has mentioned this and spoken about this since as far back as 2009. Um, I mean, and mm-hmm. I can only imagine the number of people who've, who've, who've passed away in that time due to lack, lack of access to, yeah. to medicine. So what, what's yeah. the holdup? What's, what's, what's hamstringing the government in, in implementing some of the things you've mentioned? That is a great question, and I honestly wish I knew the answer. Um, as you said, the, this first came up in 2009. Um, the coalition that, that Doctors Without Borders is a part of started in 2011, because even back then we were saying this is this is slow and we need to move on it. Um, and that coalition, we now have uh, 32 different groups, and we still are working on it. And yet here we are in 2017 dozens of broken promises later and still no policy has come out. Um, You know, I think obviously this is a very sensitive issue, I will say, for the DTI. They have to work on it sensitively. But I also, you know, we worry that there is a lot of pressure on the government from from the big pharmaceuticals in South Africa. They don't want these changes. And and we worry that, you know, that pressure is is playing a role in why there's been a delay. Um, In September 2013, the government re- released its first uh, draft of this policy, and um, you know it was it was heading in the right direction. It did have some issues, but we were very pleased to see progress. Um, but in January 2014, uh, you may have heard of PharmaGate. It was a scandal that came out. Basically, some documents were leaked to the media showing that that big pharma in South Africa was actively working and actively funding delaying this policy. Um, and that was that was in 2014. And of course, there was a huge outcry. There were people were furious. Uh, there were marches. It was massive. And Health Minister Aaron Matsuleti came out and said he would not allow Big Pharma to genocide people living in South Africa. Um, but you know what? That was 2014. And here we are in January 2017. And we still haven't seen a new IP policy. So in some ways, those companies succeeded, even though they were caught. Claire, is one of the problems also that not, not only is there pressure coming from big pharmaceutical companies, but is there also pressure from from large developed nations who might have an interest in in protecting the patents that these companies um, mm. have? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, com- countries who host who's where these companies come from, they have a huge interest in, in protecting their, their companies and protecting their industry. So, yeah, definitely uh, we see a lot of unwillingness by developed countries like the U.S. and Europe to negotiate at all on these kinds of things. They also face, you know, a lot of issues around patents, but just there's a very, very strong line against even thinking about this. And so South Africa, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the international stage for them at the moment. But, you know, I really do think that this is South Africa's chance to shine on this, to be a real 
example of what a middle-income country can accomplish with this kind of thing. Um, and to really set a, an example, be a global role model on this uh, and show, you know, we, we don't always have to give in to, to the corporations. It can be people over profit. Now, Claire, one of the, well, the stats, the, the, the reports that you've been a part of uh, publishing uh, quotes is that the cost of ARVs has dropped by 96% since the year 2000. And that's largely due to mm-hmm. activists putting pressure on, on, on patent monopolies. Um, could you just talk through why that, that, that activism was so successful and what we can learn, what we can learn from that that perhaps could be applied in this instance? Yeah, you know, that was uh, really strongly led by the Treatment Action Campaign. And I think that's why we all know and love the Treatment Action Campaign. They they didn't give up, essentially. And and it, it's a very similar story to what we're facing now with other medicines, which makes it just all the more disheartening that we are, you know, facing these issues. But essentially, what the Treatment Action Campaign did and their allies, and MSF was proud to be one of those allies, was was show, first of all, through the evidence, what the ARVs were capable of doing, and then just not let up on that pressure, really show how many people in South Africa needed these medicines, showed the excessive profits that were being made on them, the excessive ways that, that pharma companies were trying to control this and control the price, and, and and finally, I guess, just shamed them out of out of doing what they were doing. I mean, there was the, the famous case that the pharma, I think it was nine companies, brought against Nelson Mandela when he said that that we needed to have cheaper ARVs and that he was going to start bringing them in. And the, those companies were shamed eventually into dropping that case. And that's when it all sort of started started coming down. And, and I mean, y- you can just see what is possible from that. And I think that's what we all have to remember. These problems are really, really similar um, and in many ways worse. And, so, you know, it's, it's so systemic at the moment. Uh, it's all across all diseases. It's not like we're just talking about one disease. Um, so I, I think what we can learn from them is really not to give up, to keep up that pressure, to keep up that public and to provide the evidence, you know, and, and that's what we've done with this report. The report shows across nine different diseases across the whole disease spectrum that these issues exist everywhere. It's not, it's not a, elitist problem it's not a classist thing it doesn't only affect rich people or poor people it affects every single one of us and Claire, you've gone one step further and actually, as part of the report, recommended some specific law reform um, that, 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 that is part of the demands. Could you talk us through some of the, the, the game-changing sort of reform that you think would really make the biggest impact? Yeah, sure. So we, as the as the Fix the Patent Law campaign, um, so that's the 32 groups I was telling you about earlier, we're basically asking for four main things that we think are crucial. And all of these things are incorporated in the Doha Declaration, so perfectly legal under international law, perfectly accepted. Other countries have used them. Um, but essentially what we're saying is the first one is that we would like to see stricter patentability criteria. So basically just have some criteria which determines, which we can use to say, does this merit a patent? Does it deserve 20 years of protection? Probably more than that, actually. Um, at the moment, what the only thing you have to do in South Africa to get a patent is fill in the form, pay the price, and you have it. You have 20 years of protection. So we're saying that's really not acceptable. And then we want to see some criteria that we can check these patents against and say, are they worth it? And sort of similar to that, the second thing that we're asking for is um, patent examiners. So basically using those criteria, we need examiners who can go through every application and match it and decide and make really, you know, educated decisions on whether this patent is is deserved and whether it would be good for South Africa and it would affect the health sector, you know. Um, on this one, I'm, I'm quite pleased to say that the South African government has just begun training some patent examiners. So we're really excited about that. And we're really hoping that, you know, they're getting balanced training and that they're, they're learning all of this stuff and that we can start that system soon. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a bit difficult to tell patent examiners to examine without a policy. So that policy still is just crucial. Um, Go ahead, Greg. No, no, I was just, I was just wondering on this. Um, I'd imagine that these big pharmaceutical companies say that, um, they, they invest extensive money in research and development and, Mm -hmm. and their products, uh, they have the right for their products and their, their creations, I guess, to be protected in some way through intellectual property laws. Mm -hmm. Has, has there been an example in other countries where, where these sort of patent laws have been reformed to, to allow for generics to be, um, to be manufactured? I think I read somewhere that Brazil might have done, done something like this. 
Yeah, Brazil is pretty good on this. India also is great. Um, India really took advantage of the of the trips flexibilities from the Doha Declaration and said, you know what, we're really prioritizing this. And as a result, uh, India is basically well, we nickname them the pharmacy of the developing world mm-hmm. because their generics are able to come to so many countries that can't afford the the brand name products, um, and and that's life saving. You know, they're they're tenth of the cost in some cases you know it's ridiculously low um and it's the same product it's you know so india is a great example brazil also coming up there so there's definitely been examples um and then we think south africa should follow in those footsteps uh it's it's not a difficult thing to do india is particularly good with um uh, something called a patent opposition procedure, which is actually one of the other things we're asking for, which is basically just a way to say, you've granted this patent, but we want to appeal that decision. We want to oppose that and sort of take it through a court process as well. Um, and that's been something quite big because a lot of patents have been you know, overturned that way um, when they haven't been deserved in India. And, and we would like to see that in South Africa for sure. I mean, Claire, it sounds like uh, you're sort of hitting all the right buttons in terms of having the right data, putting on pressure, and we really look forward to, to seeing your, your campaign and your coalition yield some results. So please keep up the great work. Thanks. Hope, hope we succeed. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, that was Claire Waterhouse, who's an advocacy coordinator at Doctors Without Borders, um, talking about a, a coalition that they formed uh, on making sure that people in South Africa and around the world don't die simply because they can't afford three, four, 100,000, 500,000 rand for life-saving medical care. Um, we'll make sure to share the report on Twitter. They've put together a really comprehensive report on that. I think it's important what Claire was saying, that this isn't unprecedented for a country to, to reform its patent laws. If if it's happening in India, if it's happening in Brazil, which are our BRICS partners here, I, I hope and I hope there's some serious sort of um, work done on this within the DTI and Cabinet. Um, yeah, and I'd love to, I'd love we could see sort of partnerships between, uh, I mean, some of the countries you mentioned, a Brazil and an India, to all come together and say, if you have made success on this legislatively or through pressure against the big pharma, as they call them, let's let's all work together. I think it's a shame to see every country have to work through its own mm-hmm. sort of individual process. I wish there was a way, perhaps a BRICS framework or an AU framework, mm-hmm. where gains can be collective. I don't know if that's. Yeah, I know, I know the United Nations, um, has done some investigations and, and put out some reports on these issues, um, detailing sort of some sort of framework and suggestions for countries, countries to follow. Um, I think it's an issue that we'll have to talk to Claire about and, and some other people in the future, particularly on the front that these big pharmaceutical companies, as well as, you know, their, their sort of large developed host nations, are putting significant pressure on, on perhaps our health industry here and our government officials. Um, to prevent something that could save many, many lives. And I'm curious about the, about the, the DTI's mandate and, and sort of how they might approach this. I'm thinking of comparing perhaps a DTI compared to a Ministry of Health. Um, and, and what that tension may look like where DTI is trying to make sure, uh, that, that South Africa is a friendly place for business, for foreign companies, that, that basically people are happy with the investment climate and the economic climate in the country. And you have people saying, no, you should do something that will piss off this giant international mm-hmm. companies. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about what, just, I don't know, just how those tensions sit between mm-hmm. a, a, a pro sort of constitutional and a pro health um, and really, folks, you know, make sure that everybody has access to healthcare. What's there somebody that's saying, no, we want to make sure that, that investors keep coming mm-hmm. and that, that, that giant pharmaceuticals are happy. We can provide jobs. We um, can, you know. and I suppose that's just the big attention of South Africa. You know, if I'm going to get meta on you of saying you, when you have a sort of capitalist framework in a free market economy and at the same time have this constitution that protects so many rights like access to healthcare, how do those things coexist and can they coexist? Wow, we should just end there. That's, that's probably the deepest thing I've said in three years on the show. Now, to change direction somewhat, we'll be talking a bit about something you wrote about the other day, Greg, which is, um, which is, uh, apartheid era corruption. And, and you, you wrote an article ab- ab- uh, about what, uh, what came out that the, the new public protector, relatively new public protector, um, who was working on a report that leaked about, uh, apartheid era corruption. And specifically, this was about, um, allegations, uh, that the sort of apartheid era government had given what they call lifeboats or quote, sort of bailout format type, um, uh, uh, loans, uh, to what a company that is now sort of tied to ABSA in a way that was, that was fraudulent and is alleged to have purely just been stealing from the government. Mm. 
Um, start of the year, we find this leak. Um, just give us some context on this. Were you surprised that this came out and, and that this is a focus of the government at all? What, what was your thinking when you, when you saw this report? Well, I think the, um, the, the complaint to the public protector was laid, I think about five years ago, um, by a guy, a guy called Paul Hoffman. So it wasn't a complete surprise that the public protector is working on this, but it's leaking sort of, I think shock, shocked everyone. It came out. No, no one really expected it. I mean, somebody, we've got, finally got someone on the line who's been sort of digging into matters like this for a long time. Uh, we'll be chatting to, uh, uh, Martin Wells, who's a vet, veteran investigative journalist and editor of monthly investigative magazine Noseweek. Um, Martin, can you hear us? Uh, I can hear you now, yes. Well, oh, wonderful. Uh, Martin, we just got a couple of questions for you, Greg. Can you jump in? Yeah, Martin, I think we should just start with, let's go, go back to this issue of the lifeboat that, that Bancorp got and, and obviously Bancorp was later acquired by ABSA. I think, I think a lot of people struggle to understand the idea of, um, how Bancorp got this money from the Reserve Bank and just what the terms and conditions are. Are you able to sort of break it down for us? Uh, yes, uh, I, I, I believe I can, um, because uh, let's start off with the idea that banks, uh, the res- reserve banks or their equivalents worldwide, it is customary that when a bank gets into a short-term crisis, usually some sort of cash flow problem, um, they still have good assets and everything else, but a short-term cash flow problem, then the bank um, may intervene uh, by making a loan of some kind or another, never a gift. For some reason, it's never a gift. It is always a loan because a gift would be seen as unfair advantage relative to other banks. So what they do get, they can get a soft loan, um, and it is quite often kept secret because the fear is if it were to be known that a bank is in a desperate situation and needs help, uh, depositors might panic and do a run on the bank, obviously making the situation worse and po- possibly prompting the closure of the bank. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the background to what uh, so-called lifeboats are meant to do. It's a rescue a crisis, and also in terms of policy, it's only kept secret while it's a crisis. Once it's over and it's all win on, then it is generally disclosed, and they generally disclose it by saying, uh, bank X got into trouble last November. The Reserve Bank handed them out. Uh, we've investigated their management. They've fired manager X who made them fluff of it. Uh, they've reformed the shareholders and put in a bit more money and all is well now. That's, that's the normal procedure. In this case, uh, Bancorp, which was fundamentally an earlier bank called Trust Bank, there had been a huge fraud on the bank uh, by a Cape property developer called Mitchell. It's quite complicated. It involved the sale of thousands of plots on, in seaside uh, townships. And it was done with the connivance of the financial director of the bank. Uh, they sold these plots to civil servants, largely Afrikaner civil servants, advertising in Sunday newspapers. Trust Bank gave them all credit for the deposit. And they were going to pay temporarily because they were all told this was a fantastic investment. Uh, they're going to be able to sell them to the plot of the rich of Joburg. And it never happened. So they all proceeded to default on these deeds of sale. But in the meantime, Sachs and Mr. Mitchell cleverly, with their connection in the bank, uh, said, listen, we've got all, we've sold all these plots. We've got all these deeds of sale worth many, 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 many millions. And we'd like to discount it with the bank. Would you pay us out cash, please, 80%, and you can get the money? The result was, short, long and short of it, Trust Bank ended up with no money in its vault and a hell of a big pile of bad paper. Mr. The financial director fled to America, and then the problem arose because the Reserve Bank was confronted with the problem this bank should be bankrupt, but in the course of the investigation of what happened, it emerged that many, many nationalist um, provincial councillors, politicians, had all taken free plots and had assisted in the launching of the scheme. And this was going to all come out. So they rushed to Sunlum, who was a loyal Afrikaner institution with lots of money, to bail them out. That was the that was the, how. Um, Trust Bank became Bancorp, uh, a 
subsidiary of Sunlum. Mm-hmm. However, it still needed to be helped, and they were in deep trouble. And so the friendly Reserve Bank, also run by a good Bruderbonder, formerly a mem- member of the secret Afrikaner Bruderbond, Mr. Dr. Stalf, and his deputy, both senior members of the Bruderbond, uh, decided they needed to help this bank. Uh, but loans weren't very good because they weren't very good at repaying loans. In any case, it was friends helping friends. So they decided to make a gift to the bank. And the initial gift was going to be somewhere around 150 million rand. But they couldn't disclose it as a gift. They used the fact that they were allowed to keep it all secret, uh, not to say anything, so it was not known. But they did a trick. They made a loan to um, Bancorp of one and a half billion rands at 1% interest. Now, that's a very hairy, scary thing to do. And the bank didn't have security, but Dr. Starr said, no, not to worry, because you're actually going to lend us the same 1.5 million that you lent us this morning at 8 a.m. that we lent you. You're going to lend it back to us at 5 past 8 uh, at 17.5%. And the difference yeah. is going to miraculously, within so many days, produce a differential of 150 million rand, which is what we intended to give you. Mm-hmm. Now, this was all obviously fake bookkeeping to cover up an illegal gift. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. They, you know, we, I lend you the money, you lend it back to me, but at a higher interest rate. Um, there's no question of repaying the money after time. That's another talk of, you know, it was repaid. Well, it was repaid in five minutes because you gave me the capital back. But I created this fictitious differential in interest. So it, it licensed me to give you 150 million as a gift. They did this several times uh, because Bangkok was really battling to get out of trouble. They, I, I have to tell you, if you go through the history of them, some of those banks, they had pretty shady management uh, and they went into lots of fraudulent transactions and scary schemes. Uh, in any event, uh, eventually uh, they have a problem with several of these small Afrikaner banks they all get put together in one big bundle uh, and um, Sundam organizes it and they form amalgamated banks of South Africa, now known as ABSA, the acronym for Amalgamated Banks of South Africa. Uh, the Reserve Bank continued uh, some, for some time after the creation of ABSA with some further loans, as far as I know, at least two more uh, of the same kind. And it, they were doing the same deal with other banks at the same time, too, but they were all Afrikaner banks, all well-connected. The one exception being Nedbank. And Nedbank's problem was that the man who caused it all was a very senior government collaborator, too. So th- there, there was a good political motive there as well. That's, that's the background to the whole saga. The, the idea that they should be sued because these were irregular, in fact, illegal gifts, is correct. The money, no doubt, should have been repaid. But time went by, and uh, in fact, it was only sort of put on the table as an issue by this these London investigators, CX, mm. in 1997, which was already 10 years later, you know, or... Know, pretty well going on in time, and that's that's where <coughs> and, all these all these discussions yeah. of the former MI6 agent uh, Michael Oatley come in. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, then as far as as far as I understand it, the CX report uh, recommended that this money could be recovered and that the government should pursue it. Um, let's just fast forward though, because we're, we're running a little bit out of time to today. Um, were, were you surprised by the provisional public protectors reports, uh, recommendations that ABSA should pay over, over two billion rand and that we should have a commission of inquiry into such corruption? Uh, <clears throat> I, I was, I think, I, I think the, the, it, it, it was um, odd to me still that, uh, the previous public protector, Martin Seller, hadn't managed to finish in time. It, it seemed to become a sort of a, a tentative rush job at the end, and she didn't quite make it. 
my full expectation was that it was never going to be published. So it, it, that the surprise was that it that it was leaked, and I am absolutely convinced that the leak was deliberate mm-hmm. um, to make to make the excuse that um, you know a, an official accidentally sent the complete report to everybody who could conceivably be affected by it, uh, which sort of suggests that, you know, a dozen or two dozen copies were floated out. Mm. It's absurd because in any case, the sort of practice would be to show you your own evidence, not everybody else's. You know, say, have we reflected what you said correctly sort of thing. So, um, and then secondly, there is um, a lot of evidence to suggest that changes were made. And that certain names were far were emphasised and inserted even in inappropriate places, almost as if, it, as if it was a desperate attempt to attract public attention to particular names. Yeah. Uh, Rupert being one of them. Rupert being, I think, the the you know the the Buddha ogre, which is now being used with a really strong racist agenda to to sort of um, you know whip up some sort of political racial sentiment. Mm. And the irony is that, for instance, Mr. Rupert says, at the time these things were happening, Sunlum didn't have shareholders. It was a mutual benefit insurance, life insurance company. And in fact, the benefactors of these gifts um, were in fact probably the policyholders. I, I, I can't measure at what stage who gets what benefit. But there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the the bank bank um, Bancorp ultimately APSA that it benefited benefited with inappropriate gifts and it might not be billions it might be hundreds and hundreds of millions I, I'm not an accountant and I haven't had sight of the accounts in any case so but so, 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 I, I think there's absolutely no doubt that that money should have been recovered and that it wasn't. Mm. It might have prescribed, but I think there were political reasons, and that's where the question lies. The question is, why did the ANC government choose not to recover the money? Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think the public protector might have taken a different stance from the investigations of um, Judges Heath and Davis, who separately investigated the matter, but did not recommend that, that the government uh, chase the money? Look, I think, I think uh, Heath was... Um, easily subject to criticism, and, and you know he he was compromised in so many directions himself uh, that um, I, I think his his uh, findings were legitimately open to question. Um, that's just my personal view. Uh, Davis rather hedges his bets. He sort of says, "Well, it, it's probably going to be difficult," and like me, he's saying. You know, I, I haven't signed the calculations in the documents, so uh, uh, it's probably quite, I agree, it's probably very complicated after all this time to substantiate claims when my guess is those Reserve Bank documents have long disappeared. And that's correspondence. You know, there are a couple of examples of that correspondence that floated out at the time and that self-suppressed using threat of prosecution. But... They're, they're, but they're, they're, the, the full accounting has not ever been made available, and I, the doubt is that it would be. So in principle, I think, you know, they should have been sued, but maybe by now it's, it is problematic. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll definitely be following Noseweek and, and keeping up to date on the story. Thank you. That was uh, Martin Welts, editor of Noseweek and um, veteran investigative journalist. So, Kingsley, we have a new guest in studio since this conversation was going on. Absolutely. Sneaked in quietly. Someone we've had on studio before. Maneo Mahale, welcome to the show. Um, you do quite a lot, uh, aside from writing, performing, community organizing, and today we're having you on as part of your work with Iranti around the, the prevention and combating of hate crimes and hate speech bill, is the technical term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, we've seen a lot over the past couple of years, we've, we've, there's been sort of rumblings about we need a piece of legislation, especially when we saw some of the xenophobic attacks that have been happening. We saw some of the sort of social media hate speech that's come around from people like Penny Sparrow. And we've seen what's been, 
you know, consistent in, in, in South Africa's, you know, post-democracy is violence against LGBTI and queer persons. So there's been a, at least a feeling that from a lot of people that there need, there needs to be another sort of piece of legislation to help us with this. So I'd love if you could just talk us through sort of the, the origins in your work in this, in this, in this bill and making sure that it gets public participation of how, how we arrived at what is now this sort of mouthy word, the prevention and combating of hate crimes and hate speech. But how do we get to, to the piece of legislation that we're now discussing? Um, so, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of people that can speak, um, more on, okay. on my, um, on, on the, on the history of the bill and, and how it came about and, and, uh, particularly civil society organizations that are, that were involved in, um, in lobbying and, and, um, advocating for the bill. Mm. My work specifically with the bill, um, uh, started with Iranti and yep. they needed, uh, someone or uh, like a media consultant to, um, uh, really ignite public awareness and public engagement around uh, the bill. So my first sort of engagement was around the actual uh, event, which was a public engagement that happened on the 11th of November mm. last year, mm. um, which uh, involved around 100 different organizations and individuals from all over the country um, to really debate and talk about the bill. I was part of a really dynamic panel uh, with re- representatives from uh, Weber Wenzel. Um, there was uh, Professor Jean Nell from UNISA. Uh, there was uh, Dr. Kelly Gillespie from from the Department of Anthropology at WITS, uh, Joshua Suhula, who's uh, the Regional Human Rights Officer at Iranti Org, uh, Sandra Borman, who's the Managing Attorney at uh, Lawyers for Human Rights, and it, and me <laughs> um, on on the panel, and and it was a really interesting, uh, meaty, highly contentious sort of panel because. There, I, I really got to see, and a lot of people really got to see and experience that there are different, uh, feelings, different opinions, and different, uh, locations and positionalities around the bill. Um, not everybody wants it. Uh, there were people obviously on the panel, uh, that were part of the working group, and mm. obviously they have something very different to say. But as you say, uh, it came about, you, I really got the impression that it came about, um, as a response to, um, an increased awareness or an increased frequency, and, and that's debatable, of, of, of public perception around um, lightning issues like hate crimes and, and hate speech. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd love you could just speak more around some of the different perspectives that came up. I mean, you mentioned, you've mentioned academics, activists, civil mm. society organizations. So I'm curious if you could just summarize some of the key points of people who are perhaps really invested in this and really think this is a, a step forward in the fight against some of the, some of the th- things we face today mm. and some of the people who think perhaps it's, this is not, is not helpful. This bill in its current state is not helpful or perhaps may make things worse. If you could just talk us through some of those perspectives. Uh, fantastic. So, um, as part of my work with Iranti yeah. org, uh, we, we created a five part conversation series, like a, uh, video interviews with all of these different people. And I really got to listen to, um, their different ideas. So people, as, uh, such as Sandra Borman, who I spoke to, um, on the day of the actual public engagement, which was organized in conjunction with FEW, or, um, or the Forum for Empowerment of Women, um, uh, she, her perspective mostly, um, if, if I don't want to kind of like, laugh. <laughs> Um, paraphrase too much was that it really does come out as a, as a, a response to, um, uh, the kind of racism that we're seeing, the kind of xenophobia, so-called xenophobic attacks, and mm. a piece of legislation is is um, or, or an instrument of the law is a, a, an appro- appropriate response to the kinds of violence, or as, as an anti-violence strategy. But then, uh, people that I spoke to, such as Professor Kelly Gillespie, who has more than 20 years of research and experience critiquing and criticizing, um, um, and, uh, uh, around the criminal justice system, um, is vehemently opposed to the bill because, uh, she doesn't believe that criminalization or further criminalization mm. is a deterrent or, uh, a deterrent to crime or uh, uh, an effective anti-violence strategy because mm. it deals with symptomatic um, expressions yeah. to systemic issues. So when we're seeing attacks on homophobic attacks, when we're seeing attacks on trans women, when we're seeing attacks on queer bodies, um, a lot of the time the people that are criminalized, the people that are thrown in jail are, are black people. And, um, 
her research showed that the criminal justice system and the prison system or the carceral system is an overwhelmingly anti-black and anti-poor system. So we're throwing more black people in jail where um, I mean, the, the more systemic issues, the economic issues, the, the, the underlying issues that mm. lead to a lot, um, and the history, obviously, that South Africa comes from a very turbulent history where, where uh, racism and sexism and homophobia, to name just a few, yeah. are intimately connected. So criminalizing these people um, that commit these crimes isn't necessarily a long-term strategy. Mm. So she was talking about restorative justice. Um, I, I just had finished up an interview with uh, Joshua Sahule. From Iranti, um, and, and their perspective was specifically around, uh, queer and, and trans and intersex bodies and saying that a really big limitation of the bill is that the state is left out as a perpetrator of crime. So, I mean, and when we're thinking mm. about, um, instruments of the state, oh, such yeah. as the healthcare system, mm. and when we're thinking of instruments, um, of the state, such as, um, the, the, the police. Yeah. That um, those people many, many times end up being perpetrators of the kinds of violence that mm. could be seen and could be named and and um, in the perspective of activists must be named as hate crimes against queer, trans and intersex people. And what's, how can we criminalize the state? How can we use a limited bill to sue the state mm. um, to the kind of violence that, that queer, trans and intersex people um, experience daily? At the hands of the state. So that's a huge limitation Absolutely. of the bill as well. Um, and also a, a major limitation that came out of that very same interview is that the deadline for, <laughs> for engagement and submissions on the bill is at the end of this month. Um, which doesn't give civil society organizations a lot of time. I mean, we had one public participation. I know Tri- Triangle Organization, which is bo- uh, based in uh, Cape Town, had a, a mass public participation as well. And there's one coming up um, with my work with Uranti where we're trying to go to the Northwest, mm. to Limpopo. To, but I mean, we don't have time. Um, and the state isn't giving us time to really respond to this bill and the issues and the complexities and the different perspectives. And, and um, I think that the urgency mm. to do something isn't enough to say, okay, let's just take this um, and do anything. So I think that that is a lot of the position of many civil society organizations and individuals and activists. I mean, just quickly on the time fact, I know the first deadline was, was at the end of last year, the end of December, if I'm not mistaken, yes. and an extension was granted till the end of this month. Yeah. Is there a feeling that more time will be granted for more? Um, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, I, I don't think I can speak yeah. uh, definitively on whether more time will, will be granted, but we definitely need more time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and I mean, you raise so many issues. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people feeling that perhaps it's just a very reactive thing. We have a problem. Let's just quickly make a bill mm. as opposed to trying to tackle large social issues, which is a lot more complicated. <laughs> mm. um, and a lot of people saying we're treating symptoms, not causes. So, I mean, as you, I mean, you're deeply involved in the participation on this. Is, is there a feeling that this bill is the best we've got and let's, let's try our best to make it as, as, as good as it can be in time for submission or some people saying this is not, this is not helpful at all. We're wasting our time. Damn the, damn the bill, damn the process. We'll just um, do what works. Yeah. I mean, from the public engagement yeah. as well, that there were, there was definitely a, a feeling of, of a real discontent okay. with, with the bill. And also that these aren't small things that, uh, this is probably one, one of the first times in which we we're having a piece of legislation that conflates, um, n- well, not necessarily conflates that puts hate crimes yeah. along with hate speech and hate speech is also a very difficult thing to prosecute and a very difficult thing to it's slippery yeah and could lead to um to a slippery kind of slope and and i i mean we're dealing with very hot topics at the moment um most most recently thinking about the grace bible church and yeah. the, and the kinds of comments against against homo homosexuality um and a lot of people are saying hey that's that's hate speech but then wh- how we it's it's fraught. It's fraught with a lot of very complicated issues. Um, so I think that the bill itself, I think it would be extremely optimistic to say that this is the best that we have right now because it's not just the the perspectives of activists and academics mm. to talk about underlying issues and, and talk about restorative justice or more or crit- criticizing the criminal justice system. It's really just even about the bill and the language of the bill mm. um, and and the categories of of um, 
of identity and, and religion and, and sexuality, etc., that it's it's also murky about how those seventeen or such uh, categories got to be chosen. So I think I I would say that it's extremely optimistic to say that this is the best that we can do. This is the best that the government can do, and and there's also like a underlying. Um, feeling of suspicion to be like, why is it firstly, and, and this is an important question that why is it that we're given such little time for public engagement? Um, is the is government shorter than, than usual? I, I would think so. I, I yeah. don't necessarily have a lot of experience, so I can't speak on that. But, um, I, I, I remember in my conversation with Joshua, it was like, it, it, they, they, it spoke about that perhaps this is like a PR exercise or, or from the government. And I mean, that could be a speculation, but it's, it, it does beg the question about what, why is it that this bill is, is coming about at this time? Mm. Why is it that, uh, civil society organizations and individuals and activists are only given such a little time to engage and, and respond and give submissions about the bill? Um, which I think is a, a, a very pertinent and prominent and profound question, um, to pose. It's a lot of peas in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to add one. I've got nothing. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I'm just feeling the weight of the, the enormous challenge of saying, is, is, is legislation in this, in this style of, of, of criminalizing this the best way to combat a large social issue? So I'm feeling the weight of saying, okay, so then, then what is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and are they, are they, are there any ideas sort of emanating from the collective and the people that you're talking to around better ways, perhaps outside of the judicial system, around better ways to combat things like, like homophobia, like like sexism, like like violence against foreigners, mm-hmm. is there are there alternative suggestions that saying, hey, going through the legislative framework is not the best way. Mm-hmm. This is a better way. Are those suggestions sort of starting to pop up? Um, I think yeah. so. And and from the conversations that I've had um, in the conversation series, I've seen that definitely. Um, but I think that. Uh, a, a lot of what I'm getting and a lot of the feedback that we've been receiving is that we have to go back right down to the radical basics of things. Yep. That's how is it that say, for example, the bill says that, uh, the sentences for some of these, or these crimes or whatever is not necessarily criminalization. Then it's like, okay, then it's a, maybe it's about education or rehabilitation, etc. Mm. But mm. how is it that the government themselves can educate other people about hate crimes against, for example, LGBTIQ people when the government themselves are not adequately educated and trained and informed about the the complexities and the realities of of the of the lives in which they 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 are purporting to protect so i mean it's it's not even about the bull i mean at at that particular point that a lot um of of the engagement that we're hearing is that we have to go all the way down um to basics um about why about the real motives um and the real core issues with the government and, and issues around them. I mean, I'm just thinking in a country that has sort of a, sort of a, sort of a background in, in, in reconciliation and this feeling that if we all, you know, if we all come together and talk, things, things will, things will get better. If we see eye to eye and realize that we're not so different, things will get better. Um, where some would say that's not helpful. And the flip side of that, I would think is, is things like this. They're saying we're going to have a sentence. If you go on Facebook and you say terrible things about LGBTI folk or black people, white people, these, you go to jail for this amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm just, I'm just feeling this tension of what's a, what's a measurable and practical middle ground that we can find that's mm-hmm. not just saying let's, let's, let's all get together and talk, but at the same time is not trying to criminalize symptoms, not causes. Yeah. And, and what is, and how do we move from the public participation you're talking to to this middle ground? Well, that's a sort of a massive question. But no, what's the, of course. What does that? What do you see as a way? And that's yeah. super massive and yeah. super complex, right? <laughs> but I'm inspired, yeah. deeply inspired by conversations around accountability. Okay. Um, that I mean, I, and I think that there's a difference between punishment or punitive measures and accountability, right? And and um, particularly from my conversation with Dr. Kelly Gillespie, that we were talking more um, that we just got into a conversation around restorative justice. And I think that that's a really big term and a very complicated yeah. term and a very fraught term because, like you say, we come from a background in which the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, depending on who you talk to, a massive success or a massive failure yeah. because of um, who it let off the hook and also um, – 
who the onus of or the onus of of participation of um unleashing pain and talking mm. about trauma was undoubtedly on black people mm. um but i think that conversations about accountability kind of turn that on its head to say that right restorative justice is not necessarily about uh throwing people in jail but it's about really thinking about what justice looks like and really imagining what justice could look like um apart from the the carceral system apart from the criminal justice system and how is it that we're going to get at systemic issues and it's not saying that we're going to get everybody off the hook and like mm. hold hands and say kumbaya kumbaya um that's that's not that's not what what um i at least my interpretation yeah. of of accountability is, is saying is saying that we have to acknowledge that there have been grievous and deep harms done to our society and that they have been disproportionately in terms of the crimes and the kinds of violence that is inflicted that disproportionately it lands on black people on poor people on trans people on on, on the intersections on the most marginalized mm. and to center them in any kind of effort um, towards justice and to listen to what they want, to listen to these communities and, and not just tokenize their opinions, not just, you know, we're going to put you on a panel and, and listen to your pain and, mm. and see you cry and then mm. do what, what we want to do anyways, yeah. what we were going to do anyways, um, or let your perpetrators off the hook because now we've spoken to them and, and we've put them in rehab and we've, et cetera. Um, I think it's, it's just about really coming up with just, just the strategy, strategies that place, um, the weight of history and the weight of the kinds of politics and violence and marginalized bodies at the center, um, of any kind of project going forward to kind of heal the kind of stuff that we're seeing, which is going to be tough work because I mean, how do we even do that? But I mean, I'm an optimist. In about, so. in about a week, how long was it that like? <laughs> by next Thursday, we just need to do all of that. Um, Monday, I know you've, you're just in the final stages of your consultation process, but I'm wondering if there's sort of anything you'd like to sort of say to anybody listening in about ways they can, they can either contact Durant, you or attend any, any forums or workshops and think ways they can be a part of the consultation. No, um, of course. So, um, I would recommend that everybody goes on to the Iranti website, uh, which is iranti-org. So I-R-A-N-T-I-org.co.za, um, or email getinfo at Iranti dot uh there. <laughs> Let's try that again. Right. We can we can we can share it on Twitter. It's Fantastic. Fine. But yeah. get info at irantiorg.co.za. Yeah. So yeah. I'll I'll share all of those details to you um to kind of get more information yeah. from Iranti people themselves um about the kinds of public engagements that, that they're doing and also that this work doesn't stop with the submission. This work doesn't stop on on the thirty first of January, that there are going to be public engagements after that, that there there'll be articles written and panel discussions um as well in as engagement, national engagement. And, and this is very much a coordinated effort from many different organizations that are working together to try and get people really talking about a sore spot, um, and a flashpoint, um, such as hate crimes and hate speech, which this bill, um, as, as complicated and as mm. limited and as flawed that it might be, but it brings up this, these conversations that must be had. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Mahala, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. Wonderful. For everybody listening in, remember to download and share the podcast. Um, we'll make sure to share all of this on Twitter. I think there's some really cool opportunities from today's show around the fix, uh, fixing uh, or reform of, of patent law um, in ways that could save, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of lives around the country and now on the on the prevention and combating of hate crimes and hate speech bill about ways that regular citizens can really be a part of of deciding what, what, what legislation is and how to have this sort of best legal framework that, that we can have for a better country. So thank you for listening in. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.